So what we're doing in here, if you're, if you're just coming in or you haven't been here, we're walking through the life of David. And uh, David's life is found primarily in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, although we get all kinds of supplemental information about him everywhere. He's, he wrote half of the Psalms. Um, we're going to primarily use Samuel as our guide and kind of jump to Psalms as needed. What? No, he's talking to me? Okay. So, um, but one of the things that I really want to impress upon you guys is not just to merely come and to sit in this class and to hang out with us, although we're delighted to have you here, but really I hope that you might spend time daily in the habit of just reading through it, right? If you read a chapter a day, that'll take you like five minutes. You want to give 15, you can bang out three chapters a day. But maybe just read through Samuel. There's a number of different benefits, not the least of which is that as we're studying the life of David, really I'm just using David as a tool to help you learn how to read narrative, how to read the Old Testament, how to, re- how to learn about the life of this central character. He's the most important character in the Bible apart from Jesus. Um, but also because we want to learn how to read it in a way that discovers Jesus. And if you're learning all this stuff in class, but you're not actually doing it at home, then you're missing out. This class doesn't have any value if you don't apply it and do it. So really, I hope that if you've never yet developed the habit of every day, before you go to bed, or be- when you wake up, before you go to work, or maybe on your lunch break, Take five minutes, take 20 minutes, take whatever time you can carve out and say, I'm going to like, every day I'll have this relentless habit of spending time in the scriptures. And maybe you'd start that in 1 Samuel. And if so, we're in chapter 18 this week. That might be a good place to start if you want to pick it up the story where we're going. Now, if you do that and you're reading through his life and you understand the story, then you're going to find, and, and it's just going to happen. You only have to try. You're going to notice echoes. And as we do this today, I want you to notice some kind of different sorts of echoes. Sometimes we're going to find something in 1 Samuel 18, perhaps, that reminds us of something that happened. Am I too quiet? Is this not loud? It's loud. Is it loud? We're good? Everything's great. Okay, awesome. Um, 1 Samuel uh, 18, he might say something that is, in fact, an echo of something he said in 1 Samuel 16. Maybe I'm making this up. Right? But you're going to begin to notice, oh, hang on a second, that happened before. The narrator is weaving things in on purpose. Right? There's things that you're going to notice, things you're going to see. And just the fact of being in the text is going to help you to notice echoes that occur within the passage. In fact, where's my wife? Kelly, see where you at. Okay, so Kelly is uh, sitting back here, and she... Uh, wasn't here last week. She was at a reunion with her college roommates, but she listened to the talk, listened to the, the class, whatever we call this thing, and she said, you know, one thing I, I saw or noticed, I'm just going to say this because they won't be able to hear you, babe, if that's okay, but uh, is that it's when David shows up, last week we looked at David and Goliath, and when David shows up there um, on the battlefield to deliver the, deliver the goods, Three of his brothers are named. He's got like seven or eight brothers, but three of them are named. And one of them, do you remember one of them was like really grumpy and really grouchy? And we were talking about why is he, you know, David hasn't even done anything. His brother's already ticked at him. Well, Kelly noticed something in that passage about the naming of those three brothers that just kind of sheds light on that, right? Anybody want to guess? When I, I know it's hard to read my mind. Can you read Kelly's mind? <laughs> the naming of three brothers. Do you know where we saw that also? In the anointing, exactly right. So if you go back to, is it 16? I think it's chapter 16. In 1 Samuel, God, David and Goliath is 17. I think 16 is the anointing. Maybe it's 15, but I think it's 16. Um, in the anointing, those same three brothers are named. And that anointing of David is a specifically a rejection of this one, a rejection of this one, a rejection of this one. And those three that are named, that Samuel's like, not him, or God's like, not him, not him, not him. 
or the same three that are named there at the battlefield. So that, I think the author is doing that. Kelly was pointing out that he's probably reminding us that these brothers that were passed over and then jealous of their brother who, for whatever reason, the runt of the litter is the one that gets picked, that's going to show up again. And those, sorts of, those are the sorts of things you're going to notice if you're just immersed in the text. If you're just reading, you're like, hey, that reminds me of something, right? So we're looking for those internal echoes. We're also looking for echoes or connections that exist outside of 1 Samuel, right? So that we're going to see this today. Some stuff is going to happen in our story about the life of David that is also part of the broader Old Testament context. Things are going to happen in David's life, particularly this week in chapter 18, that are reminiscent of things that have happened in the lives of other people. So you just click on that filter. You're just watching for, oh, how am I seeing a pattern of the way God behaves? Are there other leaders or other characters in the Bible that had a similar circumstance with a similar result to what we're going to see in David's life? If we start to notice those, then you can begin to grow in confidence. Oh, okay, this is, he's saying something. This is not a one-off. This is how God behaves, right? And then a third filter just to watch for is whenever you're reading this narratives, you're like, how does this anticipate or point to what we know about Jesus? What's going on in David's life? There are things that are conspicuously similar to what Jesus is going to ultimately be and do. And if we can learn to notice those, then that's going to give us an advantage in recognizing what the Holy Spirit really meant in telling this story and including these details. He's trying to show us something. He's not just showing us what has happened, not just showing the patterns that God gives, but he's showing the ultimate fulfillment of that pattern over and over and over and over again is going to come to bear in the life of Christ. All of these things that God is doing are all themselves foreshadowings, prefigurements, anticipations of who the Messiah will be. And we're just going to try to learn to catch those things and notice them. And if we do, then my, my promise to you is that the Bible is going to come alive to you in a way that it never has. That's what we're trying to do. But all of it happens because you're all by yourself alone with a book and you're reading it and you're beginning to discover things that God has put there. Cool? All right, let's do 1 Samuel chapter 18. Continuing the story of David's life with all that stuff in the back of your mind. All right, it starts off 18.1, okay? So listen for echoes. Listen for where have we seen this one before? Where has this happened already, even like in the last couple chapters? Just notice. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Okay, so there's a lot going on, but we're just going to look. We're one filter here. There's more than, more than one thing happening, but I'm going to direct your attention to one. What is this reminiscent of? What's, hap what, what's happening between David and Jonathan right here? Because it's not the first time we've seen this happen. Covenant. What is it? Co okay, so David is making a covenant with Jonathan. What's a covenant? Um, it's a compact. Covenant is a compact. That's not bad, Susan. It's a okay, so in, in, in a covenant, you can have two different parties, and they're going to form some kind of an agreement. Um, you are, many of you are in a particular covenant right now. <laughs> marriage, right? Marriage is a covenant. Why is marriage a covenant, Lois? Do you know? Love and honor Jeff. And 
like obedience is good, right? Because marriage is a picture of our union to Christ, right? And in, in marriage, it's a crazy thing. I'm, mar- I'm doing a wedding today. You guys know Kyle and Whitney. Whitney Gibson, she's been leading our youth. She's a fellow. Kyle also was a fellow. They're getting married today. And in that marriage, I'm gonna, we're going to frame it out. It is a covenant. And in that covenant, Kyle is going to play the role. It's crazy. Kyle's job, bless his heart, he is supposed to be like Jesus. He's supposed to love his bride the way Jesus loves the church, unconditionally and sacrificially and purifyingly. And I'm going to unpack that for him. I'm going to lay a heavy burden on him. And it is. It's a big deal. And Whitney has a role in that covenant as well. And she portrays the church. And her job is to love her husband, Kyle, not the way the church loves Jesus, because that would be a train wreck, but the way the church is supposed to love Jesus, right? Men have a more faithful model to follow. We love the way Jesus does love. Wives are called to love the way the church ought to love. Not the same thing, right? right? But, that, but that'll, that, the, way that the, the way that the church will respond to Christ is mirrored in the way that the, a wife responds to her husband. And the way that Christ loves the church is mirrored in the way that a husband loves his wife, right? It is a covenant. These two parties are going to make a commitment, right? And so Jonathan and David, they're making this covenant, this commitment to each other. And covenant language is strong throughout the scriptures. And there's more here going on than just that, right? But God is making a covenant with us. It's a relationship, but there are terms and there's promises and there's blessings. There's even curses. There's a punishment for failing to keep the covenant. There's a lot of things we could unpack in there. Okay, good. What else? There's other things that are more benign, more banal in this, but that are still significant in the story. What's happening? How, how does Jonathan, what is the, what, what's happening physically that Jonathan is doing with David? <clears throat> Just if you were, how about visually, if you were watching it? Stuart? The robe off. It's almost like handing the kingdom. Yes. His, his heir. Yes. Heir to the kingdom. Okay, so Jonathan, who is the son of the king, is dressing David in his clothes. Where do we see that happen? One chapter ago. Saul, Goliath. Right. So that's right. So do you guys remember? So this is meant. This is part of the narrative structure here. So uh, Saul tells David, "Here, put on my armor. Put on my clothes." And he's like, "I can't do it." The, the next chapter, Jonathan, the son of the king, gives David his clothes. All right. Similarly, in the David and Goliath story, what is David's? Uh, artifact that he gets after the battle. Uh, sword. He gets Saul's sword. What does Jonathan give him? Right. His sword, right? You see, okay, so let me read you from a commentary. This is, a, a, one of the, this is probably the top commentary on 1 Samuel. It says this, In a single day, David had acquired the finest sword in the Philistine army, as well as one of the finest swords in Israel's army. He had been permitted to wear the king's clothing in the time of conflict, and was given princely clothing in times of peace. Peace. The fact that Jonathan gave David the garb and armaments originally reserved for Saul's heir, that's what he is, right, clearly possesses symbolic and thematic significance. This is the moment that David becomes a member of the royal family, right? Kelly Sue. Uh, can I a New Testament echo? Uh, by all means, yeah, I'd love to hear it. Prodigal son, uh, Luke 15, when, when the son is far off, the father sees him. Yes. When he runs to him and falls on his neck, kissing him, he gives him his robe, his signet ring, his sins, because, because the father gives of himself to his son to say, You're my heir, you're my heir. Your inheritance is not cut off, I give you all his mind. That's right, exactly right. So what Kelly, she's quoting from the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 
where when the son comes back and the father sees him while he's still a long way off, and he runs to him and he says, put a robe on him and kill the fattened calf. This imagery permeates the scriptures. Uh, Zechariah 3 is this great story of Joshua the high priest, and they're going to clothe this one. He said, take off his filthy clothes and dress him in new garments. Paul's going to use this image in, in, in Colossians, right, that we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, right? So we're just learning, we're not, we're, we're jumping ahead to conclusions, but we're just noticing, oh, well, look, something keeps happening where they keep trying to dress David. It's more than just the, the, the garments. There's meaning behind the garments. It's an invitation into this royal position, okay? No, no huge takeaway for that yet. We're just beginning to notice the echoes, okay? So this happens. There's a covenant. He's being dressed in. He's being part of the family. Go to chapter 8, or verse 5, 18.5. It says this, Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Okay? For this one, let's leave Samuel. This is a theme. Okay? I'll just give you this explicitly. This is a biblical theme. Where else do you see this? Where somebody who's nobody, right, some lowly position is exalted to the highest because of the supremacy and excellence with which they do everything. Joseph. Whole, okay, we got a whole bunch of names. Yeah. Joseph. Joseph. Okay, give, give us the Joseph story. How does this work? Well, he's sold into slavery in Egypt, and he's, he's nobody, but he ends up running Potiphar's household because he is all that he does. And he kind of has this, it keeps happening for him, right? He gets sold into slavery and he's the best slave. And it, it, you see this pattern where he goes to the lowest place, but he's so, he's such a good prisoner. He's such a good slave. It's twice. I mean, these two, slavery and prison are not the places where you tend to like go to find your CEOs or your prime ministers, right? But in his lowliness, he is so good in the situation where he is placed that even in that low place, he's exalted to the highest. And then again, to the, even to be the right hand of the king of the Pharaoh of Egypt, right? Joseph's a very clear picture. Same idea is going on with David. Who else? You guys shouted a few others. Gideon. Okay, how does the Gideon story work out? He's just, uh, they're on the threshing floor and the angel of the Lord comes and says, oh, mighty man of God, and he's kind of like, who am I? Yes. And yet, Gideon goes on to become one of the great, what we call the judges, one of the great rulers of Israel in the darkest time. If you want to, like, read the book of Judges, okay? If we're done, Samuel, you just want to go read an interesting book. Judges is such a nightmare. Like, everything spins out into madness at all times. But in the midst of it, God will raise up certain people, right? And Gideon's one of them. Who else? Moses. Moses. Okay, Who, how is Moses nobody? Well, he starts as a slave, risen to the house. Then he flees as a murderer. That's right. Lives in the desert as a shepherd. Yes. Comes back as the Exactly right. So you see the same kind of like W-shaped thing, right? We often talk about the V-shaped gospel. We descend to the lowest place and are exalted to the highest place. And you, sometimes you'll see that pattern repeatedly where Moses, both as a, you know, a baby in a basket destined to die, to raised in the palace of the king. As a murderer on the run, exalted to lead the people, right? You see it over and over again. Moses, Joseph, Gideon. How about one more? Okay, so well, Jesus is the, okay, we'll save Jesus for last, okay? But yes, all right, he does this. How about one more in the Old Testament, and then we'll get to the hero of the story. Yeah. Rah- Rahab, how does her story play out? Well, she's a prostitute. She, Pretty lowly. She has faith, and she believes and protects the men, and she gets to be part of the genealogy. She's Jesus' great, 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 great grandma, 
right? That's pretty cool, right? And she is the one who God uses to, to bring significant rescue to the people. Over and over and over again, we see the pattern. Daniel, we didn't mention Daniel. He's a big one, right? He becomes twice. I mean, he is exalted to this highest place. They give him this place of rule. And he, again, is a, he's, a, he's a slave. He's a captured remnant. And then he's exalted to the place of leadership, okay? And then it's going to finally, it, when, when it comes to, to pass in the life of Jesus, we shouldn't be that surprised. Because this, this theme is so deep into the story. God is clearly giving hints. He likes to exalt the lowly, right? Should not shock us. He does it over and over and over again. That you could be in the lowest place, in the crummiest job, with the worst circumstance. And if in that place you will be faithful with what he's entrusted to you, just be the best slave you can be. That picks up in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about the language that the New Testament gives to slaves, like, you know, owned human beings it kind of gives people fits because we feel like everything the new testament should say is like cast off your chains and you know throw a rebellion and like and i get the impulse behind that and if i were a slave that would probably be my default impulse as well but it is not the biblical impulse the biblical impulse is take the lowest place descend into the lowest place because it is there from there that god exalts us so wherever you're at crush it do the best job you can despite there's no recognition, there's no compensation. Crush it. Because God's pattern is those who go to the lowest place are exalted to the highest place. And so when Jesus shows up, he is, he's taken the lowest place. Right? It's Philippians 2. I've quoted this 10,000 times. Right? Though he, how does it go? Do you may have Philippians 2, the, the Christ hymn memorized? Do you know how it goes? Fellows have heard it infinitely, I know. Can you, do you have it, Isaac, on your tongue? No? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself to nothing, took on the likeness of man, and being in human form, he was exalted. Yes, that, that's good. You, yeah, you skipped, yeah, excellent, you're great. Then you skipped this part. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, right? Therefore, boom, God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name that's above every name. This is the pattern. We should, this is what we expect to see. Lily? Jesus is faithful with what is entrusted to him and therefore more is entrusted to him and more is entrusted to him even in the lowest places it is so backward from the way the world thinks things ought to be but it is the way things are and if we're paying attention to the story we're going to begin to notice you know you just keep doing this over and over and over again so maybe I shouldn't gripe if I'm given the crummy task right because that's the way God works his kingdom. All right, how about this? 18.6. It says, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, to meet King Saul, the king, with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourine and lutes. And as they danced, they sang. And you want to know what the lyrics to the song are? <laughs> Saul has slain his thousands. He loved that. <laughs> What's that? Sing on. Sing on. And David, this will not be melodic, and David, his 
<laughs> Tens of thousands. How do you think Saul liked that line? What's the, what's the next line in the text? What does it say? <laughs> Angry, dismayed. Does somebody have galled? I think, I think one of the translations is it galled him. Like, oh, this made him so mad, okay? So here we are. We're just watching David. So David now has, among all the things he has to contend with, now he must contend with the jealousy of a king. Who here wants to provoke the jealousy of a king? Nobody. It's a bad scene. It's just a really bad scene, okay? So what does that remind you of? Anything? Where does that, maybe within, I'll give you, either within this story, within David's story, or within the Old Testament scriptures, or even pointing to Christ. Where, what does this evoke in your mind? Okay, so there's the brother's jealousy, right? This is a theme, right? We saw it earlier in chapter 16. His brothers get overlooked. He gets picked. In the Goliath thing, his brother's all snippy with him. So, wow, it sounds like maybe God is showing that the people that he loves, the people that he's placed his hand on, even if they're faithful, people are going to hate him for it, even if he hasn't done anything wrong, right? Cain is jealous of his brother. So how many times has somebody done something right and they're hated for it? Right? So that might be a theme you're tracing through the scriptures. Where does this happen? Lots and lots of places. What else? Where is it? Again, within the story, outside the story, or pointing to Jesus? Jealousy. I've done done nothing wrong, but I'm hated. Kelly? There's just a sequence of, I think, first David wins Michael's affections, Saul's daughter. Then he wins Jonathan over. And now he's one of the asses. Now he's one of the people. So it's like my family and all the people I leave are all giving their hearts to this. Okay, that's important. Did you hear that? So that you're seeing this pattern here where David is one, Michael's in love with David, and Jonathan is in love with David and wants to give him the kingdom. Now the crowds are everybody who owes properly allegiance to Saul, everybody is lining up on Team David. Holy moly, how galling is that, right? This is why, how does David feel about becoming the son, about marrying Saul's daughter? What's his, what's his perspective on that? Humility, yeah. And you know what? I think he knows this is not going to go well for me. Like, this is just one more way that I'm going to get, I'm going to earn the ire of the king, right? It's a special man. It would be a, can you, if you were the king, would you have liked this? I don't think you would. I don't think you would at all. Do you all want to be the favorite grandparent? (laughs) Does it gall you that your grandchildren might like those losers, right? (laughs) Right, you know this, this thing is just woven into us, right? And so David gets it, he knows it, right? Um, where do you see that in Jesus' life? Where does this come to fruition for him? Did, jealous have, did Jesus have to deal with jealousy of those that didn't like his crowds? Yeah, Stuart? His own hometown, when he went to... His own what? His own hometown. Yes. Preaching uh, in the temple, and they were rejecting his word. Yes, that's right. Who are you to tell us? For a prophet in his own hometown has no honor. And also in the same parable of the prodigal son, the son that was there got all in sense that he was going all out for the son that had been away. That's another. Squandered your money on riotous living and you're killing a pig for him? Like, he never threw a party for me. Yeah, for sure. Lily? Um, awesome. One sec. No, Lily first, then we'll go to Catherine. Obvious with the religious leaders being jealous of Jesus, I mean, Upside down, you know, from the very, very beginning, like, um, Jacob, you know, gets the birthright, and then, uh, but there's, there's kind of. 
God subverts it. I can raise up a leader and be the rocks. That's right. And God subverts these, these expectations all the time. And if you could, Lily pointed out that the Pharisees are always jealous of Jesus. I did a word study on this a couple days ago on this. And if you, if you do a search for Pharisees and crowds, what you'll find is that there's this correspondence. There'll be a crowd gathering around Jesus, and then the Pharisees are all grumpy about stuff. And I think it's because they're like, I wanted the crowd, you know? Like, you, you know this phenomenon. Here, here's a couple examples. Matthew 9. Um, uh, while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and couldn't talk was brought to Jesus. Nine, this is Matthew 9.32. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. And they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Verse 34. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They've got to find a way to justify it. They've got to build their own narrative. Yeah, well, sure, the crowds love him. Crowds are idiots, right? They can't even tell what we can see, which he's clearly possessed by a demon. You see this thing, it happens repeatedly. Matthew 22, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. And hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. You want to know what they do when they get together? They plot how they're going to kill him, right? So it's the crowds provoke the... Okay, so this is just a theme. We just see it. It's not even a biblical theme as much as it's just a human nature theme, right? Nobody likes it when the other guy is getting all the popularity, right? Catherine, what would you want to say? Sarah, yeah. Now this is a this, this is a great, so there's lots of jealousy. It's just funny. I don't even know how this works out, but apparently, if one man has multiple wives, the wives get jealous of each other. Isn't that weird? Like, what is up with that, right? I don't know how that plays. Silly. Okay, so we're gonna see these themes of jealousy, right? And now you might know. Oh, other times I've done a good job. I've been faithful to what's been entrusted to me, but I'm hated for it. What am I doing wrong? Well. Maybe nothing. Maybe nothing. Okay? Keep going. How about 1810? Watch this. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. We talked about this, right? Evil spirit. You remember this? What does it mean when it says evil spirit? Harmful. Very good. Is that, what is it, Susan? Yeah. So the spirit that comes on, it's not that God is using sin. We, shouldn't, we read evil and we think sinful. But if you look at that way, that, it's the Hebrew word ra, and it shows up like, 200 times in the, in the Old Testament. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's, it's God is using sin to accomplish his purposes. It's a harmful spirit. It's a troubling spirit. It is, a, it is specifically sent to, to interfere in his life. Absolutely is happening. But I wouldn't carry into that kind of some of the moral implications of that that we would think. Okay? So this spirit, this evil, troublesome, harmful, injurious spirit, comes from God upon Saul. Saul was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So that's weird that he stuck around long enough for it to happen a second time. Wouldn't you leave after the first spear? That's weird. Okay. So, I don't know. Any observations about that? Echoes? Does that, has that happened before? Does it remind you of anything in the Old Testament? Does it point you in any way to Jesus? Chew on that. 
In fact, let's do this one for just a minute at your tables. Give you guys a chance to think about this one. Where does this whole idea, just, I won't tell you, I, I have a category for that, but just think about it. Anything interesting about the spirit chucking thing? Go ahead and take a minute. Chat. Work it out. observations, anything? And, and by the way, we are always, always, always allowed to get stuff wrong on the way to getting it right. We're just experimenting. We're just rolling it around. So, got any theories? What, why is the Spirit including this little detail? Yeah, Catherine, Cat. Well, it makes me think about when the crowds wanted to uh, throw Jesus over the cliff or all those things, and he just eluded them. He just sort of walked through them. Excellent. That actually happened several times, right? So it does, I think, that, that echoes that to me. Like there's, let's see, there's, I'll give you, I'll read a couple of these where Jesus, something similar happens to Jesus. And then we'll try to see what it means. In, in Luke 4, they got up and they drove him out of the town and they took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. In John 8, after Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, they picked up stones to stone him, but he hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. In John 10, it says, Jesus says, even if I do it, even though you don't believe in me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. It's interesting, okay? So what do you think, Kat? Why, that reminds you of that. Do you think that the author of 1 Samuel was pointing us to that? Or, or, or do you have any, any thoughts on what that means? Why does that connection? It's similar, because David eluded the spear. Yep. I'm sure that had something to do with God because he didn't want David to get killed right then. Okay, great. Okay, and that's it. That's exactly right. What did she just say? God didn't want David to get killed right then, right? Is, are they going to kill Jesus? Yeah. They are. Are they going to kill him by pushing him over a cliff? Are they going to kill him by stoning him to death? No. Okay, so there seems to me that God's purposes will prevail. I don't know how he keeps slipping the noose. I mean, he just keeps evading capture. But... God has a purpose. It's going to end when it, when it ends. Does that, I don't know, does that give you any comfort? Yes. That God's purposes will prevail. It, there may be enormous pain in the story. There is. But God has a plan. God has a purpose. Right? Kat? It makes me think about the world. Because we think the world's going to end all these times because of this. And then, yeah. You know, in the past, the world wars and things. Yeah. Cuban Missile Crisis. And we somehow skipped it. That's right. And so there's this phrase, this great phrase in Galatians 4. It says, in the fullness of time. You know this phrase? In the fullness of time, God sent a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, right? So there's, there is a plan that is working out, Paul says, in conformity with the purposes of his will. Sometimes the world feels very chaotic. But God had a plan for David, and so he is going to spare him from not just two spears, but a whole bunch more stuff. David's going to die, and so are you, but not yet, right? There's a plan that's working out. Catherine? It, it makes me think there are souls in Revelation that are under the altar, and they're saying, 
When are you going? How long? Yes. And he says there are enough people to be killed. Yes. Till the numbers are killed that he has. That's a great point, Catherine, that God has his purposes, it's going to happen, and we're, just, we're letting the game play out. Now for this one, I want you to watch this. this, this whole idea that David eludes capture, this is going to happen over and over and over and over and over again. Saul's constantly trying to kill David. Like for the next 30 chapters, David's a marked man. And there's, there's, this, there's this great scene where like David is marching around this mountain. Do you know that? I don't even know what chapter it is. We'll get there eventually. David is marching around this mountain and Saul and his army are coming around the mountain and they're like right here. And like, so Susan, you're now Saul. So we're getting right to be here. We're right here. And all you got to do is turn your head. Somebody's like, hey, Saul, something's going on at home. And like right here, Saul leaves and turns around and goes away, right? And there's no way that David could have ever fixed it. David couldn't have. But God just at the right moment intervenes, makes Saul stupid, spins him around, and off he goes. He's going to evade it over and over and over again because God is in control. Just watch it. It might even be fun to look back at your life. Where has God been in control? Man, you're on the brink of disaster. And yet for reasons you can't explain, it all worked. Have you seen this happen? It all worked out. Well, maybe God is in charge, right? My story. Kat, tell us your story. Uh, almost got run over in a parking lot the other day at Kroger's. Oh, praise God. This girl was, <laughs> was leaving. You know, she was pulling out, so I was walking behind her because she was going that way. Well, all of a sudden, she backed up quickly and to touch me, but she stopped. Praise the name. Seriously, right? And you got to spare your life and us the sorrow, the sorrow of that. It wasn't time yet. Not yet. Maybe tomorrow. You never know, right? But not, but not yet. Not yet. Max, did you want to say something? You're just hanging out? Okay. All right. Let's keep going. The clock is ticking. All right. Look at this. What's going on with this daughter thing? 1 Samuel 18, 17. Saul says to David, here's my older daughter Merib, I guess. Merab, something. I'll give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul had said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Okay, pause. I want you to get this one. Okay, listen to this again. Here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. This is the setup. This is, this is yucky. Does this remind you of anything? We haven't gotten there yet, but you've heard about the story. Yeah. What is it? It is, right, what's the, what's the Bathsheba connection? Yes, right, so when David... David sees Bathsheba taking a bath. She was aptly named. And he gets her pregnant. And he's, now he's got to solve this problem. He has her husband. What's, her, what's Bathsheba's husband's name? Uriah. Uriah's got to come home. He's supposed to go home and sleep with his wife. So he'll think the kid is his. But he's too honorable for that. It's like, oh my gosh. So plan B is send Uriah to the fer most ferocious part of the battle. And let the Philistines kill him. And then I'll marry you and everything you will. Right? Ah, this makes it even worse, right? The exact thing that had been done to David. He was, David was sent into battle in the hopes that he would die, implicating this thing with this woman. And that very thing from which God graciously and miraculously spared him, he employs the exact same technique against his enemy. Maybe David thought it was a good idea 
Yeah, maybe David learned, hey, so I know, I know something that might work, right? It's awful. And that's why we say you, we're watching David through two lenses. On the one hand, he is the template of the Messiah. He does so many things well. There's so much. We're like, ah, this anticipates what God is going to do. He is the man after God's own heart. There's all these things that we love about David. But the narrator is careful to say, but hang on, don't get too excited. Because he is not the Messiah. He is the template for, the form of, and he is the greatest disappointment and the foil. Because he is going to do to Uriah exactly what God rescued him from with Saul. Bummer, right? So there should just be like, as you get to this part of the story, you're like, oh, well, okay. If you get to the part of the story the first time, you won't recognize it. You just, because we haven't gotten to the Bathsheba chapter yet. But then maybe by the time you get to the Bathsheba chapter, you're like, hold on. This happened before. What a dirtbag. What an absolute snake in the grass. I guess maybe there's someone else. That even David cannot be the son of David. Someone else is going to have to come and be him. Make sense? That's how you read this stuff. All right, let's keep going. Treachery with Uzziah, or Uriah rather. And then I think a couple more. We've got a little time. First Samuel 18, 20. All right, jump down there. Watch this. Now, Saul's daughter Michael, ah, this is different from the first daughter. Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. Remember Jonathan Windsor, wins him. Michael, everybody's fallen in love with David. And so when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. He thought, ah, oh, I will give her to him. And listen to the heart of this father. He thought, well, number one, she may be a snare to him. Thank you. And so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And so Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity. It's really a third, but a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Saul's got two different angles. There's Michael is useful to him in two different ways. What are they? What are the two ways that she might blow this up for David? Be a snare. Okay, so. Right, okay. That's okay. So what's the dowry? What's he have to pay to get her? Two hundred Philistine foreskins. Okay, or one hundred. He only needs to pay one hundred. He doubles the price and he like he just flexes and brings brings back two. I have a T-shirt. I should. I, I meant to wear it. I just forgot. Darn it. But I have a T-shirt. It's so awesome. Is anybody on my staff team in here? Is anybody, nobody's in here? I have a T-shirt and it says "Welcome to Church of the Holy Spirit" and it is a picture of David dropping off a bag of two hundred Philistine foreskins and it's. <laughs> Such a great t-shirt. Everybody looks at it and like nobody knows what it is. They're like, oh, but some Bible picture. I'm like, yeah, look closely. It's really, I'll, I'll bring it in sometime. It's awesome. What's a, we, were, we were joking one day at staff meeting about like making some new VBS t-shirt. And then one thing led to another and we thought it might be great to put that scene on a t-shirt. And then we actually did. And it's, it's awesome. I'll bring it in. So, um, so there's the doubt. Hopefully he'll get, you know, on the 99th Philistine. Um, he'll get his head cut off. That's the same as the first thing. But what's the other way that Michael's supposed to be a snare to him? It's not as obvious here. You're going you're gonna to get more. You get to know Michael a little bit. What, what is it, Kelly? Uh, it's a guess. Is it um, her, uh, her idol? Absolutely, yeah. Later on in chapter 19, it's going to say, Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering with garment, put some goat's hair at the head. So I don't, Michael is not a godly woman. He's like, you know what, he's married my daughter. She's kind of, 
she's kind of worthless. Maybe that'll work out well for me. That's basically what's going on. She is not a godly woman. And, she's, and, and, and have you noticed this? If your son falls in love with a woman who's not godly, it's more likely that she'll drag him down than he'll drag her up. If your daughter marries a man who's just kind of, it's more likely that he will drag her down than she will lift him up. Have you noticed this? So that's what Saul's thinking. He's like, yeah, she may just like take away his heart for the Lord. Because if you could do anything, if you want to take away David's magical powers, drive a wedge between him and Jesus, right? David draws his, his, his power, his favor, because God loves him. And if he can interfere with that, he's like, Michael might interfere in his relationship with God. That'd be good. Or maybe the Philistines will kill him. Either way, it's great. Right? So that's what Michael is trying to do as he marries off the daughter. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Everything is being deployed against this guy. Why doesn't it work? God is with him. God is with him. He is living under the favor of the Lord. That, and that's exactly where we're meant to take from this, Stuart. That David is surrendered to the Father. He's going to screw it up. Don't worry. He's going to screw it up later. But right now... He is faithful, and as he walks with the Lord, God is protecting him, gives him success in battle, gives him the favor of the people, and he's secure in that. Well, even when he screws up later on, God's still with him. He is. Great news of it. It will be costly, to be sure, but God is, God, is, God is faithful to the covenant, and it is through David, in fact, that the Messiah will come, has come. Right? John? Um, one of the big things that uh, helps make me uh, sure that uh, this is true, if you're writing stories about your national heroes, are you going to write stuff like that about? I know, right? We t- these stories are, there's some very, very unflattering facts in these stories. And the fact that they get included in the narrative suggests the veracity of it. Yeah, because every, every single one of the national heroes that's right. I mean, every one of them. You can go down the line and see like everybody messes it up. All right, here's a final thought, and then I'll let you go. Verse 29. Here's how this, this movement ends, this chapter ends. Verse 29, and Saul became still more afraid of David, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. When the spears are pointed at you, you're supposed to be the one that's afraid. But no matter what Saul does, it all backfires. And he grows more and more fearful, and that fear turns into hate. And when it says that he remains his enemy the rest of his days, that is true. And we're going to watch that for chapter after chapter. It's going to play out. The rest of David's story, a huge part of it, is going to be continuing to elude the hatred and animosity of Saul. So when you read through it, as as you're staying through it, just watch for it. Just watch for this relationship, this dynamic. Watch this 1829, how it gets played out. What is God saying? What are we supposed to learn about the nature of these relationships? What are we learning about jealousy? And just ask questions. What does this mean? How does this point to, suggest about God's plan to redeem? How he's going to accomplish it? He's going to use the lowly rather than the, than the rich and the famous. What does it mean about you and your circumstances? How do you find yourself under the protection of this one who's come for you? Okay? And then finally, I'll just give you this. If we were to summarize all of 1 Samuel 18 and we're just filtering it for attributes of the Messiah. What do we think, you might say, if we looked at this, what is God looking for? What will be the true of the one to whom is given the right to rule over the cosmos based on the attributes we see here? Let's come up with like three, four, five options. What do you see? Not options, but attributes. What do you see? Say it again. Humility. Absolutely. This, this humblest place takes the lowest place. What else? 
He's faithful. Whatever he's entrusted to do, he does with excellence. He's humble. He's faithful. And not just inherent, but what, what might he experience too? Compassion. Compassion. He will be compassionate. Where do you see that in this passage? Oh, I don't know. I would just think about Jesus. Okay, all right, all right. That's good. He is great, isn't he? We just, he just, just floods our minds. Yeah, this is true, although I don't necessarily see it in chapter 18. Okay, so yes, David is going to. David continues to faithfully serve the very one who hates him. That's a big deal. We didn't talk about that, but absolutely, David's continuance in that. People will be jealous of him, right? Try to kill him, but he eludes it because God's hand is on his life. Similar to that, he never returns fire. He never throws the spears back. Have you seen this? We'll see this more vividly, more expressly. But David is not going to lay a hand on Saul. Despite all the things that are arrayed against him, I tell you, he is destined to be king. He will come into his throne. And so it is with Jesus. He will become king. He has, from our vantage point, become king. He wasn't king now. He became king through his death and his resurrection. But he most certainly, this David will take up his throne, no matter how many spears are thrown his way. All right, good enough for now? Chapter 19, and we'll keep going. A helpful book for the, looking at the echoes that you pointed out times. Yes, okay. We'll talk about that next week because I'm losing the crowd. Okay.